You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody. Great to see you. It's so great to be with so many of you today at Mosaic Church. Welcome. My name is Morgan, uh, a lead pastor here. We'll get into our time here in, in God's Word and some stuff we want to talk about today. Before we get into that, we're going to have our scripture reading. It's going to be on the screen here, the, the passage on which our teaching is based today. And again, you can follow along uh, on the screen or in your Bible if you prefer. Matthew chapter 16. I'll be your scripture reader. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's the reading of God's word. All his people said, amen. Yeah, some of you, if you're like me, you grew up in church. You did. And if you're like me, you're super thankful, super thankful for much of it, most of it, because, you know, if you're like me, you had the nice lady who gave out the candy when you were a kid. Anybody have the candy lady when they are a kid? Yes. Thank you, James, the candy lady. So you had some good Sunday school teachers, maybe like a really good camp experience mixed in with some stained glass somewhere and like, you know, the pre-COVID church potluck. And again, those things I hope will come back one day, Lord willing, and the COVID don't rise, as they say. But word of the wise, if you get there, when they come back, if you don't get to the desserts and the fried chicken first, take it from me, somebody else will. But, thank you, yeah. Man, we're already doing good today. Two amens, all right. But while I didn't, I didn't come to faith, like some of you, until a little later in life, until college in my case, I did grow up in the church. And again, while I'm so thankful for that, here's what I've noticed. It's sometimes... If you're not careful, and sometimes if we're not careful, this whole Christian thing, the whole church thing can unintentionally be turned into a game, not of Simon says, but Jesus says. Here's what I mean. As in Jesus says, do this, so you do this. As in Jesus says, don't do that, so you don't do that. Like Jesus says, don't look over there, but you're like, hey, Jesus, but have you seen him? You know, have you seen her? That was a joke, by the way. Jesus says, don't drink that, don't eat this, but you're like, Jesus, it's two for one night at the ballpark, you know. But again, the whole thing, no one tries to sometimes, sometimes. If we're not careful, the whole thing can become just... A game of Jesus says, and you feel good if you're jumping through the hoops and you feel miserable when you're not or you can't. Only problem is, of course, and you saw it coming, when you get down to what Jesus actually says, if you read what he actually says, if you're trying at some level, we're trying at some level to be honest and pay attention to what Jesus actually says. What he says is far less 
rules-oriented, just for the sake of rules, and it's far more relationship, relationally-oriented. Because here's what he says. What he actually says over and over throughout the Gospels are these two little words, the words, follow me. Follow me. Like, follow me, Peter, and I'll make you like a fisherman of people. Follow me, tax collector Matthew, and I'll, I'll do this in your life. Follow me, random Jewish man on the street. You know, let the dead bury their dead. Follow me, rich young ruler, and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Follow me. The list goes on. In other words, hope you'll see, at the heart of the Christian faith is not a game that you play, not even a religion you obey, but it's a person you follow, a person you follow. So what does that look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, thankfully, that's what this series we're in is all about. And to try to find some answers today and going forward, we are tracking and tracing, you know this if you've been here, tracking and tracing the life of one of the very first ones who ever tried to follow Jesus, someone named Simon Peter. We're looking at Simon's life here in the Gospels because that's what Peter does in the Gospels. Everywhere Jesus goes... Peter follows, and Peter takes Jesus up on that invitation to follow him, and each time he does that, we learn a little more what it means not to play Jesus says the game, but to follow Jesus Christ, the person. So far, we've seen Peter follow Jesus on a beach, then we saw him falling out on a lake last week, and today we see him follow Jesus while they're standing on top of a rock. We'll look at what that means, but today, though, along with Peter... We're going to learn something new as Peter follows Jesus. Here's my question today. What does it mean to follow Jesus right here in Matthew chapter 16? Here's a little focus statement for you. To follow Jesus means to be able to overcome the powers of death. Thank you. I want amen on that. It's all right. I like that amen to that base right there. I had one first service too, so y'all are tied. There's, there's space going forward for this service to win today. And if you know me, you know how important that is to me. All right. But to follow Jesus means to be able to overcome the powers of death. Now, that's a strong statement. I realize that's like a supernaturally oriented statement. And that statement right there, that may, that may have lost some of you right there. I didn't mean to, but that's just, as we're going to see, what Jesus says can happen if we follow him. So, in the interest of giving him a chance, let's look at that statement today. To follow Jesus means to be able to overcome the powers of death. How do we do that? How can we do that? Three ways, three things from the passage. Number one, it's by answering a new question, by receiving a new self. Number three, by experiencing a new power. Answer a new question, receive a new self, experience a new power. Let's go here, number one, and look at this new question that we've got to answer that Jesus asks. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, of course, if you know, you, you can see there's a little bit of a, like a buzz going on around Jesus, like his star is rising in Israel. The word's getting out. There's this really cool rabbi who's making the rounds. He's teaching all this amazing stuff. He's doing the impossible. So Jesus here is about to take this 
informal straw poll from his disciples to see what's being said about him out there, not because he's insecure, not because he's hoping for like a a good book review or he's hoping to increase ticket sales to his next big miracle feeding, you know, moment. No, but because he's after something with those who claim to follow him. So he asks, who do the people say that I am? They replied, verse 14, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the disciples here, they give him this answer and it's got a couple of things going on inside it. Let's look. First, their answer is generally positive as in like Jesus, yeah, it's pretty good, going pretty good, most people like you. But second, it's also culturally rooted because you'll notice Jesus is defined in relationship to the Jewish culture. Of course, if you did the same thing today on, let's say, your neighborhood Facebook page, on your neighborhood HOA page this week, if you ask, who do people say that Jesus is, I wonder what might happen. Not only would you probably not get back to the next HOA meeting, but you'd probably give or get or you'd receive a lot of the same basic answers the disciples get here. That is, you're most likely going to hear something about Jesus, I think, that's generally positive but also culturally rooted. That is, most people tend to define Jesus in relationship to what their culture of origin says about him. I'll give you an example. Albert Einstein, yeah, that guy, he gave an interview back in the 1920s in the Saturday Evening Post, and the interviewer asked him this. To what extent are you influenced by Christianity? Einstein said, as a child, I received instruction in both the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of a Nazarene. So does that mean you accept the historical evidence of Jesus? Well, unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth was filled with such life. Legendary heroes of antiquity lack that authentic vitality that we see in Jesus Christ. That's pretty good, right? Not bad. It is Einstein after all. But who, who do people say that he is? Einstein, he's, he's a luminous figure, undeniably attractive and amazing. And, of course, that's, while that's more poetic than any of us could have put it, Jesus here, though, in Matthew 16, I think he's looking past all the Einstein answers, all the online chat forums, all the, if you know the name, Bart Ehrman, skeptical articles. And he simply follows up with the most important question. Hear me human being you or I will ever be asked but what about you Jesus says asked who do you say that I am there's no more games he's saying there's no more Jesus says you answer the question who do you say that I am Abraham Cho is a Chinese American Christian pastor in New York and he tells this great story uh, about an encounter he had with a Muslim Uber driver recently. He says that one of the things that happens to him because there's a number of Muslim Uber drivers where he lives is when he gets up, gets picked up that is, when he gets picked up because his name is Abraham, because he's got darker skin and a full beard, he's regularly greeted with this phrase, "Assalamu alaikum," which is Arabic for what? Do you know? Anybody know here? Yeah, peace be upon you. You got, to, you got to show off right there. It's all good. It's a standard greeting Muslims give to each other. And after this kept happening, he said he needed to figure out a better response to it than, 
yeah, you too. <laughs> so he said he went home and he Googled what a better response or traditional response would be. And it turns out it's actually wa alaikum salam, wa alaikum salam. And so on this particular Uber ride, when he was once more greeted with the, that traditional greeting, he said in his head, when he replied with wa alaikum salam, he thought, I just nailed it. You know, like I made this guy's day. He was going to have his ride in peace. Instead, the Uber driver said to him, oh, so you're a Muslim. Abraham Cho said, no, I'm actually a Christian. And the driver said, well, your name is Abraham. Do you understand how important your name is in the Muslim faith? And the Uber driver went on to tell him the story of Abraham and Ishmael and the rise of uh, Islam and Muhammad in the world and how Moses and Jesus are both revered as prophets in Islam. And Abraham Cho said he could tell this man's faith meant a lot to him. And finally, the driver said to him, hey, hey, did you know that Jesus... Isa is a revered prophet in Islam. And Abraham Cho said, yeah, I did know that about Islam. And then Abraham Cho proceeded to ask him a version of what Jesus asked his disciples here in Matthew 16. Pastor Cho asked his driver this. Oh, but did you know that Jesus was always and consistently claiming to be the son of God? God come in the flesh. And instead, his driver said, well, yeah, I was aware that Christians had came to believe that over time because their doctrine had been corrupted. That's what I was told and taught. But Abraham Cho rightfully said, no, 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 that's actually not true. That's not true. Because if you go back and you just read the Gospels themselves, what was written within one lifetime of Jesus' existence on planet Earth, he said, you just read the words of Jesus, you'll see he's constantly claiming to be God come in the flesh. And then he gave his driver just one very appropriate example. It was this. He said, Since we're talking about my name, Abraham, there was this one time where Jesus was talking to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And he said this. He said, before Abraham was, I am. What Jesus was actually doing, he went on to explain, was taking the Hebrew name for God, I am, on his lips and saying, that was me. I lived before Abraham. I existed. I pre-existed Abraham because I'm God. And he asked his driver, do you know how those people in that day responded to that claim? He said they picked up stones and were ready to kill him because it was that clear what he was claiming. It was blasphemy, right, if it wasn't true. And the driver said, so so you're telling me that Jesus Christ claimed to be God? Abraham Show said, that's right. Open up just about any page on any gospel and it's there. And then because it was an Uber pool ride, right then two other passengers got in the car Their conversation got cut short. But Pastor Cho prayed for the driver that he might come to know Jesus not just as a prophet, not just as a luminous Nazarene, but as something more. I ask you, who do you say that he is? And I want to tell you, especially for those of you who are skeptics, skeptical, coming today online in the room, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for saying yes to the bribe or to the promise of a date, uh, you know, this coming weekend. If you said yes and you came to Mosaic Church today, we believe in that. But this, let me tell you, this is a single question we all need. You should go after first. Who do you say Jesus is? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Son of the living God. Yeah. Jesus responds to it quite emotionally, as we're going to see. And if we'll answer it like Peter here, if we'll answer Jesus' new question like this, if we can affirm that, yes, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, God's Savior, the Son of the living God, here's what can happen next. Number two, if we'll answer this new question, number two, we can receive 
a new self. Look at this. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Oh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I want to focus here on one thing here. Right here is what I want you to see. Right here, immediately, right away, after Simon says this, to Simon, whose name means reed, like a reed that blows in the wind, lives in the water, to the one who's impulsive and a bit manic, to the one who's like, you know, loyal one minute, but then egocentric the next, to the one who, who goes back and forth, back and forth in life, to that one, the reed, Jesus says, no, no, you're a rock, because that's what Peter means. It means rock. Jesus says, Peter, you're not something that blows in the wind. You're something that can't be moved. Now, let's pause here because whenever, whenever God does this throughout the Christian scriptures, you should know it's more than just someone getting a new name. That's a big deal. It's always about someone receiving a new identity. A new way of being in the world. Abram becomes Abraham, right? Not his father, not his dad, but father of many nations or just or big daddy, if you wanted to put it like that. Jacob, right? Jacob, the deceiver, becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God and prevails. See, it's not just a new name. It's a new identity, a new way of relating to the whole world. And this new identity, it's always, always a gift, a gift of grace. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you didn't earn this revelation, right? You didn't figure it out, conjure it up, do your calculations. No, people didn't explain me to you. You didn't earn this. No, your grasp of me is a gift of grace. It was given by my Father in heaven, and so blessed are you. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter right away, not only is this revelation, the realization of who I am, a gift. Oh, no, but your very self. Your identity going forward is a gift. I'm calling you, Peter, what you are not. I'm seeing you as someone brand new before you can ever even become it. Here's what I want you to see. I hope you'll see this. That for the one who follows Jesus, their entire life, front to back, is based on grace. On something given, not earned. On something received, not something achieved. That shatters our categories of self and person and identity and all that. And if that's true, and I believe it is, how much more stabilizing, how much more steadying of a basis for identity is that? How much more can that kind of identity be able to overcome the powers of death? Let me give you two quick implications. I think are right here in this new identity. Two implications of a grace-based, gospel-centered identity too. Here we go. Number one, I think we can be less right, more humble. Less right, more humble. I don't at all mean right as in left-right politics or right and wrong because, of course, there is a capital T truth. Yes, but what I do mean is that a gospel-based, gift of grace identity enables us not to have to be right all the time. Author Anne Lamott puts it like this. She said, quote, when we're stuck in our convictions and personas, we enter into, look at this word, disease, of having good ideas, being right. My Jesuit friend Tom used to say that he never noticed what he was feeling in an argument, only that he was right. The bigger we pump ourselves up, the easier we are to prick with the pin, and the bigger we get, the harder it is to see the earth under our feet. 
We all know the horror of having been right with a capital R, feeling the surge of a cause, whether in politics or custody disputes. This rightness, look at this, is so hot and steamy and exciting until the inevitable rug gets pulled out from under us. And church, let me ask you, I want you to do this. For me, quick thought experiment. Think about the finest person you know. Finest person you know. Hold that person right there in your minds. Do you love them because they're always right? They might be. They might not be. Do you love them because they come browbeating you with their arguments all the time? But I'm willing to bet you love them because of their character, because they're humble. Let me ask you, do we love Jesus because he was right all the time? Of course he was right. He's right all the time, every word all the time. But why do we love him? I think it's because he said stuff like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. What would Jesus do? I think he'd be gentle, humble in heart. Now, before you send that email, here's the application. Before you have that conversation, before you fire off that post, come on, come on. What if we just asked, remembered, what if all I have is a gift of grace? My connection to God, my very identity is a gift. I think that kind of identity, friends, is rock solid. It overcomes the kind of death that rides shotgun to pride in our lives. Second implication, not just being more humble, but second, we can have less fear and more courage. Try to unpack this. 80, this is cool, 85 years ago today. How about that? April 18th. Yeah, 1946, this photograph was taken. I rather like it. It's a photograph of Jackie Robinson. His first home run in his first game playing for the AAA Montreal Royals in the minor leagues there where they're formerly all white until he broke the color barrier. And uh, William Weinbaum, in an article this week from the undefeated ESPN sports column on African-American athletes, he talks about the incredible story behind this amazing photo. They're actually building a statue of this, making a statue out of it, and putting it in Youngstown, Ohio, Pastor Roslin. That's right. Supposed to go, actually supposed to go up today. COVID delayed it. Should go in July, August. Anyway, Jackie Robinson, of course, you know his story. He went through heartbreaking abuse, trying to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. He leaned on his Christian faith and his pastor. Just thought I'd throw that in right there, by the way. When he thought he would break from all that he went through. But what you may not know is that this simple handshake actually paved the way for him to break into Major League Baseball with the L.A. Dodgers and the Majors. Because shaking Robinson's hand as he crosses home plate here, kind of floats across home plate, kind of cool, huh? That's George Shuba. George Shuba, Robinson's teammate. Because there had been some question how Robinson's teammates would receive him. So when Robinson hit a home run in his first game in, in a, in a, with a team, because of course he did, he's Jackie Robinson, right? Shuba made sure to stand up for Robinson publicly, as is evidenced by this photo. It actually ran in newspapers across the country. And in his own autobiography from 1948, Jackie Robinson, my own story, Robinson recalled this moment, this handshake. He said, when I crossed home plate, George Shuba was waiting for me. That's the way to hit that ball. Jackie Shuba said, that's the old ball game right there. <laughs> Don't you love the language? He shook my hand. And years later, Robinson actually called Shuba to thank him for the handshake because he feared his own teammates wouldn't do it. And Shuba replied this. I love this. He said, and I said, basically, why? Why are you thanking me? What for? Are you on our team? Are you on our side? Okay, then. Did you love that? And George Shuba is a quiet man, but he's also a deeply Christian man. 
Here's what I think we can see right here. Two Christians meeting each other at home in a way, cheering for each other's success. Why? Because if he loses, she loses, I lose. But if he, she wins, I win. See, Christians then, those with a new identity based on grace ought to be able to, like George Shuba, Jackie Robinson, have the courage to reach their hand out to those not like them and do two things. Number one, cheer for their success. And number two, Stand for those who can't stand for themselves, like perhaps some of you do with our homeless community, maybe with the unborn, maybe people groups where they've been shut out in culture without access to education or opportunity or power. Yeah. So I want you to know, here's, here's my point. Everybody watching this along with everybody in a room today, you ready? Like those two dudes, we are on the same team. We're on the same team. First of all, we're humans made in God's image. And even more so, if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, you and I are in this together. Paul says, whether we like it or not, and sometimes we don't, we are one, one body of Christ. And so I wonder today, I wonder, could you do this? I wonder if as those with a new courageous identity based on who Jesus says we are, not on who we think we are, who our culture says we are, could we reach out to someone who doesn't look like us, someone struggling right now? Just say, I'm your teammate. I'm your teammate. We're playing for Jesus together. Forget the media stories, forget the narratives, all that. Tell me, tell me how you're doing. How are you feeling? Because if you win... I win. It's been a hard week, hadn't it, church, in the news? Lots of shootings, a lot of violence, a lot of fear, a lot of pain. Could we look at, could we think about someone not like us and just say, listen, I just want to win together. I want to win together. That kind of courage enables us to overcome the powers of death that creep into human relationships. It just does. If it's all a grace, if it's all a gift... I think we can have less fear, more courage. Number one, if we'll answer a new question. Number two, if we receive a new identity. Finally, number three, and I love this. I hope you'll hear this today. Yeah, we can experience a new power. Let's see what that is. Verse 18, Jesus says, oh, and I tell you that you are Peter, you're the rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, you should know if you didn't that this one verse right here has been a source of endless controversy and intramural disagreements within the Christian church. Literally for centuries, the best and brightest Christian theologians have arm wrestled over what this this means for us. So I thought then, in light of that, I would take like the next 90 seconds and just solve it. Is that cool? You guys up for that? You heard it here, folks. Case closed right here. No. So what is the rock Jesus is going to build his church on? Is it, is it A, is it a personal rock? As in Peter's the rock. Jesus is saying Peter is the rock of the church. Listen, the Aramaic translation of this passage sure makes it look that way. Roman Catholics believe this. Or is it second, a spiritual rock? Sort of what more Protestants believe is in the spiritual revelation that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the rock. That revelation, isn't that's what the Christian church is it's all about, right? Is it the spiritual rock? Or is it third? Is it like a literal slash metaphorical rock? (laughs) What I mean is this. This is pretty cool. You know where Jesus and Peter most likely, probably almost for sure are standing 
when Jesus says this. The text points out they were in a place called Caesarea Philippi, mostly uninhabited today, but it was a city built by Romans, and it's where, even today, this giant rock still stands. With a cave inside it, you can see it there at the bottom, called Pan's Grotto, as in Pan, the Greek god of music. This rock, what was below it, was a place of intense idol worship. They believed there was a connection to the underworld there where the spiritual forces of death came out of. And there was explicit fertility rites taking in place in public right there on those grounds, on that rock. And Jesus is standing here with this little group of unknown people on a literal rock, which was a metaphorical symbol of idol worship. And he says, right here is where I'm going to build my church. Is the rock personal? Hmm? Is it Spiritual? Is it literal? I think maybe the answer is sort of D, E, all of the above, all at once. Jesus is a master teacher, isn't he? He can bring concepts together like no one can, can he? Yes. Oh, but Morgan, which one does he mean first or most? I'll let smarter people than me fight that one out. But what is clear is while he is standing on this rock teaching, speaking to the one called the rock, about the rock of revelation, that he's the son of God. Jesus is doing this. He is describing a cosmic spiritual struggle. You and I, the entire world is engaged in. There's like keys to the kingdom of God, binding and loosing stuff on earth, in heaven. And above all, he says that those who belong to him will have the power to overcome one specific thing. He says, you can overcome the gates of Hades. I mean, that's what he says. What's this all about? Some of you remember your Greek mythology at least a bit, or you'll pretend to. Hades was the place, wasn't it, where people went when they died, Greek mythology. It was the realm of the dead, the realm of death itself, the place from which death ruled. Death, death is is what it comes for. Every sun, come on, every star, every culture, every person, death comes for every relationship in a way. It's what overtakes your body, your creativity, your family. You will face it one day. And Jesus, though, is essentially telling us in the face of that, that his kingdom, he says his church, his ecclesia, his called out ones, his church will one day somehow emerge victorious from that great struggle with capital D, death. Even the gates of Hades, death itself cannot win against what Jesus is going to begin. That's the claim. Somehow his people are going to have a power that can even overcome death well, how can we get that? Where does that kind of power come from? Where does Jesus' church get the power to overcome little D deaths, capital D death? Look at the very end of the passage. I think it points the way. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teacher of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to, what's the word? Come on. Life, life. Jesus is telling them, I am the life that's going to overcome death. I'm going to go into battle with the gates of Hades. I'm going to taste what should forever devour every person. Only I am going to be raised back to life. He's like, I'm like a grenade dropped down that hole to the underworld, to death itself. I'm going to explode with life. That's who I am. And that's what I'm going to put inside my church, my people, so that they can be born again in this life and overcome the smaller deed deaths of selfishness and 
and pride and ego and addiction and then overcome one day the last and final enemy, capital D, death, so that one day, even when, church friend, your eyes close in death like his did, oh, they'll reopen in eternity like his did. Oh, as the the old hymn says, made like him, like him we rise, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Now, now, let me ask you, who do you say that he is? Can a good moral teacher alone defeat death? Some teaching? Can a mere prophet pointing to God defeat death? Can a president, your politician defeat death? No, no, no. Jesus Christ is the animating, animating power of his church. He's come to defeat the rule of the greatest universal oppressor there's ever been, death itself. And to do that, he would have to go to the cross for love because he loved you and he loved me and he loved people where it sure didn't look like he was going to win. It looked like death was going to win, only it didn't. Who do you say that he is? Is he the one who did this for you? In your place, because that's what it's all about, right? You in your place, so that even death wouldn't have the final word and say so in your life. Yeah. They do this for you. To say, yes, he did, is to begin to follow him. That's who he is. Who do you say that he is? I think an appropriate response now, church, might just to be to, to take a moment in prayer, take a moment in worship right in our hearts in this room, and begin to answer that question either for the first time or again, perhaps, to affirm it again. Let me take a moment here and just bow your heads if you wouldn't mind online at home and just pray with me. Lord, we just come to you and we thank you for this. We thank you for this amazing claim here. We wouldn't have believed it if you hadn't arose from the dead, but you did. Jesus, you're the life that overcomes death. On our bright ideas, on our organizational skills. It's you. And I'm asking today for those who maybe who've never said yes to you for the first time, who never just said, like Peter, man, I get it. I get it. The Son of the Living God, that today will be their day. They begin to follow you now. And Lord, we just, as your people here, a lot of Christians, of course, here in the room and online, Lord, we just begin. We just begin to thank you for being the life that overcomes death. Lord, all the death that's been in our nation this year in all kind of ways, you're still the life that overcomes it. And I believe you're doing something beyond what we can see, beyond what people or pastors or politicians or prophets even can see. You can see beyond it and you're doing something. You said that the gates of death would not prevail against your church, against your people. And so we lean into that today by faith. We trust that even beyond what our eyes eyes can see like Christians in every generation have done this today and ours we believe and affirm this is true and we thank you for doing something against which even death can't prevail we love you and we thank you for it in Jesus name amen thanks for listening for more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.